Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. We're coming to you from our studio here at the Coming Home Network International. Thank you for joining us again on this weekly program. Uh, we try to be weekly. Uh, sometimes we get caught up in everything like we all do, but uh, I'm I'm just so thrilled and, and pleased and privileged to have as my guest today, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Um, he's... Uh, I guess, a co-worker with me in the Coming Home Network. Uh, and first of all, Monsignor, good to have you join us. Thank you, Marcus. It's wonderful to be with you. It, it's it's great. Um, it's great we can take advantage of this modern technology to actually look at each other through our computers, <laughs> uh, even though you're way up in the tundra of, of <laughs> Minnesota and uh, I'm down here in Ohio. Uh, one of the reasons I've invited Monsignor to join me on this program, specifically today, because this is the Week of Unity that's celebrated. And it has a history to it. And let me say, Monsignor, that I've been a Catholic now since 1992. And I will say that during this entire time that I've been a Catholic, um, and I worked with the Coming Home Network for a good many of those years, yeah, we celebrated unity. But before that, it never crossed my mind to even think about the week of unity when I was a Protestant minister. It really, I, I didn't think, I didn't worry yeah. about ecumenism. Uh, but I think you've been associated with this week maybe a bit longer than I have. Well, yeah, but I think you're right um, that even today, like I, I haven't this year seen any evidence of up here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area of any kind of effort to do a. Um, uh, a, a celebration together, um, all the churches and ecclesial communities in the area. It's just all over. It's really a neglected thing at this point. But what one of the most um, vivid memories I have um, when I was making my way to the Catholic Church was I was in Rome for a meeting um, uh, some years ago, just before before I became a Catholic. And I was invited to go to um, St. Paul's outside the walls for the conclusion of the week of prayer for Christian unity, and um, and it, all the all the different Christian groups in um, in Rome are invited to participate in this thing, and it was just it's a magnificent thing, and it's always on the Pope's agenda. So Pope Benedict was in the chair at that point, um, and. And it was just wonderful. They they gave me a seat up in the front, uh, in the front row. And I told the cardinal that had, was escorting me, I said, look, this place is full of thousands of good, loyal, loyal Catholic people. I need to, why don't I go back and sit in the back and let one of them sit? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he grabbed me and he said, no, just sit down. Realize now, right now you're dealing um, with the sales department. But when you become a Catholic, then it'll be the service department. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm nervous. I remember it's not a, exactly a similar experience, but when my wife and I were, I was still a Protestant minister, and I was visiting a Catholic church as we were exploring, just even scratching the surface of the possibility. And we went to maybe our, I think it was our second Mass, and we had with us uh, a little boy um, named Peter, who was still a babe in arms, who within six months, Lord willing, will become a Catholic priest. But at that time, it was his first time in a Catholic 
mass and we got to this crowded church and they put Marilyn and I in the front row with a baby. And, you know, I had no idea what to do in a Catholic mass. No idea. And we're in the front row, so we can't look at anybody. I mean, it was it was bizarre. But the only time that, that the local ministers and I would gather for any kind of united worship service was often Monday, Thursday. We would mm -hmm. have some, but we didn't, that I know of, remember anyway, celebrating this week. And if you, I think if maybe, Father, you could give us a little background because I think there were parallel paths. In the Protestant world, there was the, the World Council of Churches and others that were moving towards ecumenical movements in the early 20th century. Um, and of course, there were denominations that were committed to unity. Um, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of right now the, a couple of them. That, oh, but that, I'm sorry, my mind is going blank. But, um, but on the other side, there was Father Paul Watson, which mm -hmm. was from the other side. So many people don't know about Father Paul. Yeah, uh, he was a uh, Father Watson was a Father Watson, yes. priest. Yeah, uh, he was serving in um, uh, up on the Hudson Valley, just north of New York City, um, and. It was in the late 19th century that he was, um, he heard this call to come home to the church. And uh, I guess it was, it was um, 1903, I think was the date when he was actually received into the church. But it, his journey to full communion in the Catholic church was a very difficult one. And he felt um, that the rest of his life needs to needed to be given over to the work of Christian unity. And it was his idea of the week of prayer for Christian unity to link up. Um, you have the, um, the confession of St. Peter and the conversion of St. Paul on January 18th to January 25th. And that, that constituted the octave of the week of prayer for Christian unity. And um, so it, it was his idea, and um, he promoted it. The American bishops didn't think much of it, but the Pope did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it was, it was, um, it was the Holy Father um, that, you know, made this all possible at that point. So. Well, I thought we would, that's why I invited Monsignor to join us today. Uh, for those of you that don't know this, recently on our website, Coming Home Network, chnetwork.org, we posted a link to a talk that you gave Monsignor a year or two ago, right? In, in 2016, yeah. In, at, um, it was the Archbishop John Ireland lecture at St. Paul Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. All right. So on our website, you can, you can link to that and hear Monsignor give a talk about Father Paul Watson. And, and his life, and as well as conversion, and then the formation of this week of unity. And he also founded an order, right? Yeah, uh, the Franciscan Friars of the Atonement, yeah. which um, is in Graymore, New York. And they also operate this great center, um, the Centro Pro Unione in Rome, which is a kind of a, the ecumenical think tank for the Catholic Church. So a very impressive um, thing. Oh, and also, you know, um, he's blessed now. Hmm. 
Um, okay. No, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I got ahead of myself. He's he's a servant of God, right. heading his way toward being blessed. So um, maybe if there are some miracles relating to Christian unity um, waiting out there, we could um, we could invoke his there prayers. <laughs> All right, Monsignor, what we're doing today on this program with this theme of unity, I've asked Monsignor to join me, and we're going to follow the pattern that we've done in the past. I guess we'll call it memorable verses, important verses. So what I've done is I've asked Monsignor to bring a verse to talk about, and I'm bringing a verse to talk about in this theme of unity, and in the end we'll bring them together and talk about it. Um, We could have easily, I suppose, gone to the John 17 passages, which are the, the the usual suspects when we come to talking about unity. They're the they're the verses that John Paul the Saint John Paul II used as the foundation to his uh, Unum Sint Encyclical or, or Apostolic Letter. Um, but I've chosen a different one, and 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 let me read this passage because I think it deals with the struggles of unity. And the passage I'm reading comes from Acts chapter 11, verse uh, 1 1 through 3. And it says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Now, that passage of Scripture is actually taken from the middle of a very long, important story that begins with Acts chapter 10 and actually, if you will, goes all the way through the rest of the book of Acts. I mean, it goes through the Jerusalem Council but it influences all of Paul's writings. It influences the church to our day. But what's so important about it is that there was a a challenge to unity of the church because Peter, again, following and accepting our Lord's uh, uh, calling to Peter to be the, the head of the church, is seemingly doing something that is complete contradiction to not only the long tradition of the Judeo-Christian heritage, but it's completely contrary to Scripture. And that's why I believe that the experience that Peter had in the background, of course, is when Peter baptizes Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And maybe I'll read just right before it. If you know, if you look up the story, and, and that's when this non-Jewish man, Cornelius, has a vision, and then Peter has a vision and realizes that, as Peter says, um, truly I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That was awakening to Peter. That's from um, Acts 10, verse 34. That was an awakening to Peter of a way of looking at those outside Jude- the Jewish Christian community 
and seeing that they were also candidates for the gospel. And what's really startling, if you think about this passage, is it seems to imply that the Lord Jesus didn't prepare Peter for this. Either Peter didn't listen, but he seems completely taken aback by the fact that all of a sudden, non-Jewish believers are to be accepted into the church. And it goes on in which it says um, that after the Holy Spirit fell on those Gentiles, it says in the end of chapter 10, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The point is they didn't require circumcision first. These Gentiles were not required to go through a long process to become God-fearers and to become members of the Jewish church. And up until then, every Christian, every Christian up until then was a Jew. Every Christian was a circumcised Jew. And they assumed that every new Christian had to be a circumcised Jew. And if they were a Gentile, they had to become a Jew first. That was the norm. That was, And so the point is that the the, quote, circumcision party, unquote, were in fact the defenders of Scripture and tradition. They were in line with Scripture and tradition. As far as they knew, they were being faithful to Jesus Christ. They could even go back and quote Jesus when Jesus said, I've only come, I've only come for the, uh, the Jews. Jesus says that. And so they were convinced they were right, and oh no, Peter does this. And so the point of this, and and of course, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story is this leads to the Jerusalem Council, where James, the president of the Jewish church, and then Peter are there, and Peter shares his experience that we just related to, And what happens, and the church recognizes the movement of the Spirit in Peter, and so the church changes tradition and Scripture. And no longer do members of the church need to be circumcised first. This was revolutionary, and it caused division because there were a lot of traditional Jewish Christians that would not accept that, and it became a problem. But the point of this is, in terms of unity, it shows that even Scripture and tradition alone aren't sufficient. Because even the beginning of the church, Scripture and tradition alone can lead to division. And that's why we had that third rung of the chair, as they traditionally have said, is the magisterium of the church, guided in union with Peter, guided by the Holy Spirit to understand the great, as Paul said, the mystery of Christ, which is everyone is open. Your thoughts, Monty? Well put. Uh, Well put. I was thinking of um, how Peter, you know, had, he, he struggled. Peter struggled to live this truth out. Um, Remember how Paul has to rebuke him to his face and all that. And it was kind of impressive, I think, about 
Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is that St. Luke is, um, who is the traditional writer of it, um, that Luke has Christian unity on his heart because he has spent so much time to talk about how the Holy Spirit has um, guided these, you know, Peter and Paul come from very different places and their ministry is is meshed together in, in the way that Acts been, uh, you know, Luke puts it in Acts. So it's a great message of unity, I think, just there. Yeah, just the fact it's there. And even the reference that you gave to, to Paul confronting Peter that we hear about, we only hear Paul's side of the story in Galatians. We never hear Peter's side of that story, but we'll take Paul at his word about it in Galatians when he yeah. confronts Peter. But the point is, I've always taken that as, as a very positive reminder that conversion uh, takes a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, so it's one thing for a person to recognize the authority of the church. I have friends that I've worked with, that the staff and I worked with, who, let's say, come from a Seventh-day Adventist background, who have separated themselves from all the rest of Christianity because they believe that you have to worship on a Saturday. And they believe they're being more faithful. So any Christian out that's listening to me that believes the Bible alone is sufficient has to answer the question about, well, what about the Seventh-day Adventists? Because that's what they're doing. And they're saying that we're all wrong unless we worship on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And these friends of, that we've worked with who were Seventh-day Adventists, who then eventually became Catholic, it takes a long time with them to get comfortable about worshiping on Sunday because they were convinced to their bones yeah. about the necessity and there are people that were convinced of their bones that you can't pray to dead people. But when they become Catholics, then they discover the beauty of the communion of the saints and the, and the beauty of intercession. And it takes a while. They believed in their bones. You did. Maybe you didn't because you were one of those Anglicans. But I was, a, I was a Presbyterian, and I believed that the Eucharist, I didn't call it that, the Lord's Supper, is a symbol for 40 years of my life. And then I come to recognize the authority of the Magisterium in union with Peter and recognize, now I understand Scripture and tradition better and recognize that is our Lord Jesus. But it takes a while. It takes a while. And to me, that's what happened with Peter. Yeah. Even though he led the church here to this radical change, radical, he in himself struggles. And that's a spiritual battle, you know, because I'm sure the devil was always on his shoulder whispering, Peter, you were wrong. You were wrong. You were wrong. You're leading everybody astray. There's that whisper, which has been down through the ages. It's caused division all the way through. And uh, so to me, this is a a great example of why we need the church. Christ gave us the church. And that that the, the one that held... The key, who is that the Lord had given the key, the keys to, still occasionally needed to be rebuked. Um, and I just think that's a wonderful picture, too. You have, I mean, the rebuke comes from the guy that wasn't really an apostle. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, he didn't. He 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 was called in a very different way than the others. Um, oh, and I'm telling you, when remember when he when the scales fell off his eyes, and then he was all enthused. He was speaking, and they kept trying to get rid of him, and finally he had to go to Tarsus for about ten years uh, to get his PhD. You know, he had to get him. They had to get him out of here. <laughs> he did, you know, and he comes back. All right, all right, all right. You notice, I mean, it takes a while. Yeah. It takes a while. Yeah. You know, unity takes a while because we got a lot of baggage. We've got a lot of baggage. And and we will we will in this work of unity, we will all learn lessons that we probably didn't see coming from from quarters from places where we wouldn't have expected that wisdom to come from. Yeah. And I think when the church made the decision in Vatican II to say that the church our Lord established is the Catholic Church to the Lord, the church our Lord established subsists in. On the one hand, it really means the same thing. But on the other hand, it also has this charitable way of recognizing, as it explains throughout Lumen Gentium, that yeah. this unity extends outside the walls of the church. And so what our ecumenism is based on affirming just what Peter, the first thing he did was to say, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It affirms baptism and the unity we share through our baptism. And as John Paul emphasize that what we share is a trajectory mm -hmm. towards unity. It's never, it's fine to stay where you're at. No, it's a trajectory. It's a call to grow in holiness and to grow in unity. All right, Father, what's your verse for today? Well, Marcus, the one I, I chose was the one that um, was the guiding verse for uh, Father Paul Watson. Okay. And it's from Romans 5.11. Um, I'm going to first read it in the King James Version. You mean the one that Jesus used? <laughs> That's the one, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, actually, no, I'll read it first in the, um, in the Revised Standard Version, and then we'll um, go to the King James. Okay, okay. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. And... Um, when Father Paul read it in the authorized version or the King James version, <laughs> um, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Um, so that's that was the heart of his um, his inspiration to call his order the the hmm. friars and of course the sisters too. There was there was a women's group women's order as well, of the atonement. And the idea being that that word atonement there is the ministry of reconciliation. Um, you know, obviously when Paul wrote this, he was speaking primarily, of course, of the atonement that Christ yeah. won for us on the cross. Um, but but now this is this is our we're we're sharing in that ministry. And so things that kind of jump out um, at that, you know, and, and Father Watson would would point about it too, is, um, you know, that we have, 
we have this call to um, we have this call to um, uh, do the work of reconciliation, and and we do it joyfully. That word joyful um, is in here as well, and it seems like that's a a beautiful way to think about um, about how we can be more effective and faithful ministers of the Lord in terms of reaching out to our separated brethren, wherever they may be, um, yeah. is we're in the business, we're in the business of, uh, you know, the Greek, the Greek word here, um, uh, is, is katalege, um, um, which is the reestablishment of a broken or interrupted relationship. Um, that's what reconciliation means here. And, and um, of course, primarily it is God doing that in terms of reestablishing a relationship broken by sin. But now we share in that um, work as well. And and Father Watson read this as as his call to um, to give the rest of his life to the work of um, the reconciliation of the church and and Christian people, and to do it joyfully. So right. that's I want to bring that out. Um, I'm going to jump one verse before that, because as you've talked, okay. it reminded me of of one of the things that separates us. Uh-huh. All of us, though, were baptized. There's, there is a very, very important concept that separates us um, that really began in the Reformation. And... Uh, in verse 10, right before it, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the right. death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And the thing I want to point out there is it points to the theology of Christ as our sacrifice. He came to die. Yes. I remember recently when I was sitting in church and there was the nativity scene and there was Mary and Joseph, big statues, and at their feet was this little baby of Jesus. And you had this image of there they are presenting our sacrifice. And he's come, he's lived, and he's died as our sacrifice. And behind that, Here's the point that divides us, that is one of the main things that stands in the way of unity, and that is recognizing that true worship involves sacrifice. True worship involves sacrifice. Before the Reformation, all traditional religions of the world always worship was synonymous with sacrifice um, all through the Old Testament what's the first thing that Cain and Abel do sacrifice all the way through it's an understood thing whenever they talk about worshiping other gods it's sacrifice it's always sacrifice it's always been you know you go to the darkest part of Africa and you find some tribe no one ever heard of they're doing sacrifice I mean it's a part of I think our What's the word for that? It's 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 what we inherited from Adam. You know, it's in there. Yeah. 
Worship is sacrifice. It was always sacrifice. And, and when our Lord met with his apostles on the night before he was betrayed, he gave them the liturgy in which he transposed the Jewish Passover liturgy into the liturgy of his sacrifice. In essence, in that moment, he delivered the, the mass, the liturgy that, was the, that united Christianity even through its darkest times. And it was always that way. When, when sadly we separated from our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, they continued the sacrifice. It's never been. I even believe that under good old Henry VIII, the sacrifice continued until the influence of Protestantism. And one of the first things that Luther took away was the idea of sacrifice. So now, no longer is worship involving a sacrifice. And one of the first places I, I became aware of this was reading a, a book by Orestes Brownson called Saint Worship, in which he explains the reason that non-Catholic Christians don't understand why we can pray to, to saints because they think we're worshiping them. And Bronson said the only reason is that once you take sacrifice out of worship, what are you left with? Prayer. So that's why they think we're worshiping saints because we're praying to them. But no, when we worship, we sacrifice. And to me, that's behind what you're talking about. He's talking about the blood, the death of his son. It, what's assumed is sacrifice, which is what's recognized reconciled us to God. Yeah. And so we want to work towards unity. One of the major things that does stand in the way, on the one hand, is that our separate brethren really have no concept. Or don't they, wouldn't they say they basically internalized it or um, subjectivized it? So sacrifice is... Um, I give what, up. Exactly. It's, it's submission, the submission of the will and all that sort of thing. Um, because they were afraid that um, sacrifice, as they found it in the, in the Catholic Church, because it was so ob objective, if you will, that it, it became a work or something like that, and there was no room for faith. Well, Christ died once for all. Right. So why are these Catholics uh, sacrificing him over and over and over and over again? Right. Or why is the sacrifice continuing on and one continuous sacrifice? And both of those ideas are wrong. It isn't a continuing sacrifice. It's a representation in a blood, unbloody manner of the right. very sacrifice our Lord did 2,000 years ago. But the point is that you see... The, uh, this is getting it off into other things, but I think it's in Malachi or Habakkuk, I forget where the verse is, that ties it all together when it points ahead to the to the perfect sacrifice, right? And, and the early church fathers, you're the patristic, point out the fact that there was a, a pointing ahead to this idea that the sacrifice is not going to end, but the early church fathers always talked about the, the reason we live holy lives is so that when we present our sacrifice, mm -hmm. it, it's presented in a worthy manner. 
you, you know how I, when I was struggling with this as a younger, uh, young man, um, having gone through a, an evangelical seminary, and so I heard all the arguments. Um, one of the things that really helped me um, was the idea that that sacrifice of Christ on the cross is truly an intersection of time and eternity. And so the representation of that sacrifice in the mass is a, is a way that we are not bound by time and we actually are there. We're brought there again. I found that very helpful. Um, yeah, and it really is. It's one of those things that, again, it's still a mystery. And the whole idea of transubstantiation is just the the best way we humans can come up with trying to describe what is a mystery to us. That I've found that verse in Malachi, verse okay. one, where it says, "For him, the for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place." Incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And that's fulfilled yep. in the New Testament. Um, in fact, I think Mike Aquilina just came out with a book on that. I have to recommend it. But um, anyway, I maybe in, in our closing, Father, let's see if we can, pu- can we pull these verses together. What's your thought? We've got this, the example of, of Peter and the, and the circumcision party and in that whole struggle to recognize the authority of the church behind all these other, and then we've got your passage there in Romans. I, I mean, what I, what I come away with is um, that we can never put the, the, the power, the majesty of the Lord's work in a little box. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a great vast kingdom we have to live into, and. And I just, so I guess all of us are on the, we're all on a journey here and will be to the end. And and I want to be on the best possible terms with my fellow pilgrims, wherever they may happen to be along the road. Um, yeah. And I just, I just, I just know when I think, especially this time of year during this week of prayer for Christian unity, um, I, I, you know, at one point I was angry with my old co-religionists, you know, um, I just sort of overwhelmed now with a sense of love and appreciation for them. And I find that it's a lot easier to pray now for my separated brethren. Um, and I, anyway, no, that's I, all I, that, you know, I'll just add to that, that, um, there are some quotes that come from from Pope Francis that in many people's minds seem confusing. There are some times when some of the things he says seems like he's telling us not to evangelize. Yeah. Not to, it almost sounds like at times he's saying people just need to stay where they're at. Well, but I, I feel very strongly that when you take those statements in the wider context of what our Pope has been saying ever since, not just since he became Holy Father, but his other writings, that he's emphasizing something which I think is extremely important, which is very important to our work in the Coming Home Network. And that is that our lives need to match our words. Our lives need to match our words. The first step towards unity 
mm-hmm. is for us to be abiding in Jesus Christ. That's the first step. And I remember years ago when I used to give premarital counseling, I always use that same imagery that if a husband and a wife are both growing towards Jesus, then they will be growing towards one another. And that's true with our work towards unity. If our separate brethren, through their baptism and through the graces of baptism, are growing towards our Lord Jesus Christ, and if I'm seeking to do the same, we will grow closer together. We will grow closer together. You know, I, that was beautiful. First uh, Corinthians seven eleven, Paul uses that same word again about reconciliation. And it was about how an estranged wife should be reconciled to her husband. Um, so it, it gets way down into that very fundamental level. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. In fact, I, I've often given talks on the Beatitudes as a staircase to conversion. And you can find those of you listening, if you're not familiar with that, you can go to our website. But I often demonstrate that those nine steps in the Beatitudes are also staircase towards reunion. Yes. Yeah. They are. Because you begin, you begin with detachment from the world. You begin with detachment with sin, from sin, and you begin with detachment from ourselves. And when we detach ourselves from the world and sin in ourselves, we've made a hole in our heart that can only be filled with righteousness because you hunger and thirst for it. And that hunger and thirsting will then lead us to become merciful. It will lead us to have hearts full of our Lord and will call us to reach out to become peacemakers. That's the Beatitudes. And so if we're working towards unity, it begins with ourselves. And to me, that's what Pope Francis has been trying to tell us. It begins with our union with Jesus Christ. Monsignor, as we close the program, could you close us with a prayer and a blessing? Yeah, and I would like the prayer I chose is um, is the daily prayer of Father Paul Watson. Right. It was very much beloved in the Anglican tradition. Um, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, you have prepared for those who love thee such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love for thee that we loving thee in and above all things may obtain thy promises which exceed all that we can desire. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. What a great pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hope to do it again soon. And those of you, thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. God bless you. We'll, We'll see you next week. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.